November 6, 2011, uh, lecture discussion number intermission 11. And I, again, I, I, I need to let everybody know it really is me. Um, my voice is still bad. Uh, I have done everything that I'm supposed to do uh, to help it. I've, I've been eating all the leftover Halloween candy, as I've been told, and I've drunk as many Diet Cokes as I possibly can consume in a 24-hour period, which is 12 or so, and I've had Worcestershire sauce and doing everything I can to help me with my voice. It just doesn't seem to be going away or back to usual, which is a little disconcerting, but nonetheless, it's my lot in life. Today is daylight savings time and a snowstorm, so I thought, wow, uh, it'll be interesting to see how we go, but I'm impressed so many of you came. <coughs> anyway, uh, intermission 11, I'll cough a lot today to clear my throat, is where we are have now found ourselves at Numbers 20, uh, which is somewhat on the board here, wrestling mightily with the mysteries contained therein. Now, for those of you who have been attending regularly or listening consistently on the Internet, uh, you as the highest and most holy know or should know or hopefully you know that I have been emphasizing certain issues that impact Numbers 20, um, issues that cannot be disregarded when one wishes to correctly interpret, uh, or a better way to say that, rightly understand um, what is happening at Numbers 20 and why it happened. I've been repeating over and over again, blessed is he who comes. And you should know by now, blessed is he, is he who comes is uh, Psalm 118.26. And that was uh, written by Moses. Not only written by Moses, but quoted by Christ. Moses writes Psalm 118.26. Christ quotes Psalm 118.26 at Matthew 23.39 and at Luke 13.35. And he says essentially, until you say what Moses has written, until you say that, you will not see me again. So blessed is he who comes. And he says that to Israel, doesn't he? Blessed is he who comes. Lots of questions. Why is he blessed for coming? Who blesses him? He's God. Does God bless himself when he sneezes? God bless me. Is that what he would say? Why is he blessed? Bad joke, I know. Doctrinally unsound joke, I know. Why is he blessed for coming? And bless, I think you can make the case, is really hallowed. Or glorified. That's another thing. We'll get to. But it's, it's shouted at Luke 13.35 by the multitude as Christ enters Jerusalem along with, Save us now, King of David. Hosanna. Save us now, Son of David. I, I should have said Son of David. Did I say King of David? I'm going to have a lot of those moments today. And you also know, I hope you do, that Michael the archangel shouts Psalm 118.26 at 1 Thessalonians 4.16, along with, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Now, if you hear those two together, blessed is he who comes, and behold, the bridegroom comes, what's happening? 
Yeah, you're, you're at the catching up of the church, and that's good news. So, Michael the archangel shouts it, Christ quotes it, uh, and, and uh, mentions it at, uh, at Matthew 25, 6, Matthew 23, 39. And the two of those, blessed the bridegroom, I'm sorry, behold the bridegroom comes and blessed is he who comes. Though two of those are companions and they comprise step 10 of the 12-step Jewish betrothal wedding ceremony. And I keep repeating these things in order to drive them into you. Because why? I want you to solve Numbers 20 and I want you to understand where the Hebrew betrothal ceremony or wedding ceremony, where it is in the Bible. So that when you see it, you will not make interpretive error. Plus, Along with that, Moses writes Psalm 118.26 as a response. Think of it that as a response, if you will, to the circumstances and the consequences of Numbers 20. So what happened in Numbers 20 causes him, if you want to have a cause and effect perspective, which wouldn't really be doctrinally legitimate because God is outside of time and God is the author of his scripture, but if you wish to see it from Moses' perspective and you want to put it in a cause and effect so that you can think of it that way, Moses writes Psalm 118.26, Blessed is he who comes as a response uh, to what happened in Numbers 20. Not the least of what happened, not the least of which are the removal from service and the death of Aaron and the removal of service and the death of Moses. I want you to think about that a second. That's profound. That's momentous. That is the death of the prophet. And that is the death of the high priest. Numbers 20, if you wish to think of it this way, causes that. That's not true. Please stop back there. That's not true. In the sense that there's more here in Numbers 20 than we could think. But if you wish to look at it that way, that's as a human perspective of a supernatural event. You have the ceremonial deaths of Moses and Aaron. Those are ceremonies. They have an order to them. They have a procedure. A few weeks ago, I brought up Brandon and identified myself as somebody who knows who Chuck Connors is. The rifleman. Who's, this is post-rifleman. This is when he was doing Brandon. And what, what, what I remember about it, and besides being grateful I remember anything about it, was the ceremonial aspect of what he went through. Well, that ceremonial aspect is present with Aaron, but it isn't a disgrace. He isn't, going, isn't being disgraced. God is using Aaron to teach something to Israel, as is Moses. We have the death the ceremonial deaths of these two incredible men, servants of God, men who fall on their face. But if you want to think of it that way, these deaths happen, these deaths happen because of the events of Numbers 20. And is it not then obvious that we should try to understand this place in Scripture, Numbers 20? The death of Moses, the death of Aaron. They're extraordinary. That being said, the difficulty in Numbers 20 is that it requires so much information. 
You've got to have a wheelbarrow. You've got to run around all over the place and find everything. And all of that information must be placed in its assigned position. So you not just get it, but you've got to put it in the right place. If you don't get it in the right place, you get it wrong, it doesn't fit, it'll be isolated. That's your first clue. You'll notice that nothing else seems to connect to it. It's non-connective. It's by itself. That, that should be an immediate warning that you, that you might be an error or that we might be an error or that we are an error. So be slow when you get all the pieces. Be slow where you put them. Don't be impulsive or quick when it comes to Bible scholarship. Time is your ally. Um, prayerful meditation. Be like Daniel. Prayerfully meditated over what he wrote. He didn't even know what it was he wrote. He looked at it afterwards trying to figure out what it was he said. And he found other prophets, as you know, Jeremiah specifically, and looked at what Jeremiah said and tried to figure out how Jeremiah fit with his. Astonishing when you consider Daniel wrote Daniel, had no idea what Daniel wrote. Prayerful meditation, contemplation. By the way, when people tell me that they're praying alone as they should, Matthew 6 in the room where no one sees them because God is in secret and we should be in secret. Don't be out on the street corner trying to show people what a good prayer you are. That's hypocrisy. Woe be to you, Pharisee. You should read that part. But whenever you're prayerful and you're meditating, what should be right there next to you? Your Scripture. You praying without the Bible, what, what's your first problem? I, I doubt that you are... Um, I should be careful here. I doubt that you are concerned about anyone other than yourself. Pray with your Bible. First rule. Not first rule. God is Christ is God, first rule. But anyway, fools rush in, as you know. Take your time. Look it over. Ask a lot of questions. Now, Ah, with that admonition behind us, let's remind ourselves of some other necessary steps. Then we'll go on to the five questions. Here are the five questions really quickly. Uh, remember, you got rock one, rock two. You always got to realize that. Rock one, rock two. What happened at rock one? That was different from what happened at rock two. What happened at rock one? That was the same as what happened at rock two. Compare your rocks, but know your rocks are different. Pay attention to what's the same. Pay attention to what's unique. Okay? Also know contending equals testing. And be aware that testing God is what? A bad plan. We're told not to test God. Okay, then we'll go on to these uh, five questions, which quite a few of you have made substantial progress in solving. Uh, Troy's not here, but if he were, he's pretty well got it all figured out, which is probably why he didn't come today. Um, and, and I really am tempted to just, because so many of you are starting to work your way through it really, really well, what's my temptation? To stop and let you go on your own. Because that's the plan, Right? I do not wish for you to be boneless chickens. I should leave you alone. 
But against my better judgment, I'm going to provide answers, though you may not immediately think so, which is normal. Let's uh, return to Deuteronomy one more time, because Deuteronomy uh, possesses an open sesame uh, uh, moment here or place. Okay, sesame. Sesame, sesame seed, sesame, whatever. In any event, Deuteronomy unlocks stuff in Numbers 20. So let's take a look at it again. I did it once already, but let's look at it again. This time I'm going to write it down for you so that you can see how it works. Deuteronomy 137. This is Moses referring to Numbers 20. The Lord was also angry with me for your sakes. Why was the Lord angry with Moses? For whose sakes? Israel's sakes. You've got to know that. You don't have a position on Numbers 20 that is conforming to that, is consistent with 137 Deuteronomy Throw your position out. The Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go there. So, let's, let's make sure I've got this right. Note three things. The Lord was angry. Lord, angry. Do not make a mistake there. What's the mistake you're going to make? You're going to have a very, very bad definition of, the, of anger for God. You're going to put human anger in there. Your anger, my anger, somebody else's anger. But do not do that. Anthropomorphizing. Horrible mistake. And it messes people up doctrinally their whole lives because they think God gets angry like we do. He doesn't. It's sin to say so. It's dishonoring to say so. Get rid of it. The Lord is angry. What's that mean? Okay, get them in the right order. With me for your sakes. The for your sakes is in there. And then, even you. Wow. When you look at that verse, you've got to come through with those three things and figure out what they mean. Hey, Deuteronomy 3.23, once again, Moses is talking about Numbers 20. And he's explaining to you what happened there so that you'll have the right understanding of it. So let's read that. 3.23 through 26. Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, What's the obvious question right off the bat? Why is Moses pleading with God? Does anybody else in Scripture plead with God? Put all the pleadings together. What's going to happen when you put all the pleadings together? Do not have a shallow position on, the, on Deuteronomy 3.23. It is far more complicated than your immediate response. Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time. What's that time? Numbers 20. Saying, O Lord God, You have begun to show Your servant Your greatness and Your mighty hand. For what 
<coughs> excuse me, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. There it is again. And would not listen to me. What's the obvious question? What is it that God would not listen to? Can God do anything but listen, by the way? He's omniscient. What's it mean when God does not listen? Do not put humanity into God, especially sinful humanity. Are you thinking, oh, God's throwing a little fit and want to listen to Moses? Is that what's going on here? That is not what's going on. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak to me, or speak no more to me of this matter. One word there should just come flying off the page. Speak, yes. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes. Behold it with your eyes. For you shall not cross over this Jordan. Okay? Moses pleading. Get that down. Moses is pleading. Okay? How smart is Moses? Really smart. Why is he pleading? For what purpose? Let me put it. Is Moses trying to change God's mind? That would be what? Yes, wonderfully said, Felicia. That would be stupid. Moses is not stupid. So why is he saying to these, to the people of Israel, I am pleading with God. I pleaded with God. Moses pleaded. You have to solve that. Because it doesn't seem to make sense. And what's that? If it doesn't make sense, what have you got? Something wonderful there. Something incredible. Enough of that. Enough of that. That's a What? That's a rebuke, isn't it? Why is God rebuking Moses? Speak no more to me. Speak no more. That almost seems like irony to me. How come? Numbers 20. Deuteronomy 4, 21. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. How many times you got to say it before we get that? Does it say, why, what, what, what would you have thought he would have said? You would have thought he would have said, the Lord was angry with me for what I did. He doesn't say that. What do you now know? The Lord was not angry with him for what he did. So you have to have a position on Numbers 20 that is consistent with that. 
The Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourself. I must die. Who says I must die? For your sakes. Okay? Put that together with that. Take heed to yourself, lest you forget the covenant or the contract, if you will, of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and make for yourself a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden for you. For you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Is consuming fire? What is that? Uh, let me ask you: Is that bad? No. That's good. We see consuming fire and we all think, ooh, no. Consuming fire is good. <coughs> Excuse me. We're, we're going to make it. My list, I'm going to have to put my list up here. I'm going to get rid of contending equals testing. But you need to know that. Okay, here's EFGE. Maybe I'll get it all down here on the bottom. I must die. Moses was making sure that they knew that. Making sure. Why? Deuteronomy 18.15 Lest you forget the marriage contract. E-F-G-H Lest you forget the marriage contract. There's your betrothal ceremony right there, right? God is a consuming fire. What's the obvious question? Why is He a consuming fire? Why is Moses bringing it up? What's the context? What's the context of consuming fire? What's the reason Moses brought up consuming fire? Does it seem to fit in here? It fits in here because lest you forget the marriage contract. And do what? Carve an image. Because God is a consuming fire and a jealous husband. Okay, again, there's your, your uh, betrothal language. If you forget your marriage contract, what have you done? You have committed adultery. So the context of that is all marriage ceremonial, if you will. Okay? There are ten things that must be considered. (coughs) Excuse me again. Must be considered together. Those ten things as a whole. Um, And and then you can take them, once you got them, you you got them figured out. You take them to Numbers 20 to assist in the deciphering, the reasoning out, the rightly dividing of Numbers 20. I have a note here. It says, by the way, read the rest of Deuteronomy 4. Read 425 through 40. You will find it stunning. It is stunning. Okay. Now first, a godly definition or a proper or a correct 
But godly works the best. A godly definition of the Lord is angry is essential. You've got to have that. You've got to have that to understand your Bible. You've got to have that to go through life. Because all of us do what? What do we do? We're in a little bit of trouble. Things aren't going our way. What do we do? We blame God. Why is God mad at me? Why is He taking it out on me? No, we do. How do I know you do it? Yeah. Because I do it. Expunge human sinfulness from your definition. So, what is the anger of the Lord? What is it? It isn't human. It doesn't have any human characteristics. What does it have? What is it? Why does the Lord reveal this anger, whatever it is? What is the purpose of the Lord's anger? What does He do with it? In the context of Numbers 20, we must look initially at the unbelief and the rebellion of Moses and Aaron. Two of the five questions, right, that are linked together. What did Moses and Aaron not believe? How exactly did they rebel against what order did they rebel against? They were given an order. If you want to think of it militarily, think of it as a command. They were given a command and they rebelled against the command. Uh, Saying it that way is helpful, I think. I'm hoping at least. Ask, is for your sakes. Not angry for your sakes. Is for your sakes when Moses' typology of Christ is the focus. This is not going to make sense to you until later. Let me repeat it slowly. Is the phrase for your sake in the context of Mosaic typology or when Moses' typology of Christ is the focus because that's what's happening in Numbers 20 is Mosaic typology of Christ is the focus. Is for your sakes equivalent to substitutionary sacrifice? What I mean by that is this. Christ sacrificed Himself, substituted Himself, and by the way, primarily to reveal who He is, and the result of that is His glorification. But the secondary aftermath, if you will, is our salvation or is for our sakes. Does that make sense? I will not tell you this. Christ did not, His purpose for coming, His purpose for sacrificing Himself, substitutionary sacrifice, is to glorify Him. Do not think it's about you. People tell me all the time, I had a little girl at the flower shop that Robin hired the other day. I asked her who Christ was. And she answered, Savior. No. Nothing wrong with answering Savior. But Savior comes after God. You answer God. If He's not God, He can't be Savior. So you have to have the correct order. And of course, she thinks I'm crazy. But that's good. It is good. She'd be right. 
But we went on to discuss that the, that the proper way to say it is that Jesus Christ is glorified. But it's also, once you understand that and have it prioritized in the right order, as long as you know the order, then you can say that he died for our sakes. But you have to have the correct order to do that. It's a matter of doctrinal correctness. See me later if you're confused. Anyway, angry with me for your sakes on your account because of your evil at Numbers 20, that is typologically crucifixion. Do you see that? The death of Moses for your sakes, the death of Aaron on your account, said another way. Does the anger of the Lord have a direct relationship? So my definition of the anger of the Lord, does it have a direct relationship with the death of Moses and the death of Aaron for the sake of the people? And I'm telling you that it does. Which would make the death of Moses and the death of Aaron have a substitutionary element to it. Which I am saying to you that Moses says repeatedly, I must die for your sakes. So the anger of the Lord has a relationship to the substitutionary death of Moses that is typological. Does that make sense to you? So whatever definition of the anger of the Lord you have, you must have in it the substitutionary sacrificial element. Okay? And by the way, Moses is typological. Not exact. Moses is the type. Christ is the infinite fulfillment or what is called the anti-type. You have the type which is really small and you have the fulfillment of this small portrait that is Christ. Do you remember, by the way, Moses previously did something similar and I bring this up a lot to get it in there as well. The sacrificial substitution desire that he had in Exodus 32, 32. He had come down from the mountain in the midst of the marriage ceremony, hadn't he? And the wife of God is doing what? Committing adultery during the ceremony. And what does he say to God? He says, do not destroy them. And they have this, this dramatic theodicy where God says, um, and what God is doing is revealing his mercy and his justice. And Moses is on the side of the justice. Or he is portraying the just, I'm sorry, the mercy of God. Moses is portraying the mercy of God. One of the three persons uh, of the triune God is portraying the justice of God. God should blot or should destroy them for their sin. Moses is saying, no, destroy me in their place. Blot me out. Remember that. Moses is a faithful, most humble mediator, intercessor who deeply loves his people and would leap to sacrifice himself so that they could live in spite of their evil, their stiff-neckedness and their adulterous acts. Stiff-neckedness. Is that a word? It should be a word. If I said, fill in the blank, the blank is an intercessor, is a mediator who would choose to blot himself out because he loves his people. Who am I talking about? So whenever you have a position on the angry of the Lord or the anger of the Lord, you have to know that it is in the context 
of a sacrificial death. So, stands the reason that Moses and Aaron would die in the place of the people if it would so arise. That is, I don't believe, uh, disputable. They both do it. They rush in into the midst of a plague, Aaron does, and stands there between the dead and the living. Moses wants to be blotted out. They stand before the people when they're surrounded. They have, a, they have this in, there, in them. By the way, why were they chosen? Why was Moses chosen? Precisely because this is in him. And it is a picture of Christ. They would die in the place of the people. Jesus Christ did die in the place of his people. It's a legal procedure, by the way. But for today, just as best I could get it in, Note that God's anger has the element of the transfer of sin involved. We're going to transfer the punishment of the people onto Moses. We're going to, in a way, do I need another one? Do I need something more powerful than Diet Coke? Yeah. That is almost some kind of blasphemy there. Because Supper Dave wanted to bring me more soda. And he did not bring me Diet Coke. He brought me, what was that? The Diet Dr. Pepper, which obviously means it's medicine because of the doctor. But, But could it possibly be more powerful than Diet Coke? I think not. So I have the most powerful medicine that modern medicine people know. Okay, for today, note that God's anger with, in the context of Numbers 20 has this element of the transfer of sin involved in its correct definition. So any definition you have of God's anger, you must have the element of the transfer of sin, the death in their place, the death for their sakes in it. Because God's anger is in that context, okay? has that overtone, that, that connotation to it. And it's a legality. And the transfer of sin, whenever I say transfer of sin, uh, that immediately sends us where in the Bible? That's right. The goat for Azazel. And the goat for Azazel solves the rod question. Easy as cake, piece of pie. The goat for Azazel is, of course, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is, in other words, what was the rod question? Why take the rod? If all I was supposed to do was speak to the rock, and we're at rock two instead of rock one, the rod made sense at rock one, because at rock one I'm supposed to kill the rock but I'm not supposed to kill the rock at rock two. I'm just supposed to speak to the rock, but I don't speak to the rock. Instead, I strike it twice, which is question two. Why do you do that? Why twice? But now we're going to answer, why take the rod? What's the purpose of the rod? When I'm not going to use it, it doesn't seem like. Why would God want me to take it? Commands Moses to take it. Direct order, take the rod. Why? Well, the goat for Azazel, Leviticus 16, solves that for you. 
That's the feast day of atonement. Feast day number six of the seven feast days. There's two goats at Leviticus 16. Two goats. Two goats. How many rocks I got? Two. How many times did I hit it? Twice. How many comings of God or Christ do I have? Two. How many testaments do I have? Two. I have the church. I have Israel. Two. I have witnesses. I have two. How many birds I got? I got two. You think that's a coincidence? (laughs) That's very funny. (laughs) I have failed her so miserably. (laughs) Okay. Two goats are presented before the Lord by Aaron, Leviticus 16.7. Aaron is supposed to cast lots for the two goats. Right? One goat will become the goat of the, for the Lord. The other goat will become the goat for Azazel. Now, your Bible might say scapegoat or escape goat. No. Azazel is Satan. So I have one goat that goes to God. The other goat goes to Satan. This is a great mystery, these two goats, who are obviously two components of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Two goats that portray the person of Christ. They portray two pieces of something that he does. They, teach each, they each teach of something that Christ accomplishes. They're one whole, okay, two parts, if you will. Same as the rocks. Same as the rods. I, have, I said rock one and rock two. I could easily say rod one and rod two because what the rod does at rock one and what the rod does at rock two are different things. Okay, does that make sense to you? Same rod, different functions. Function rod one, function rod two, rock one, rock two. Different rocks, by the way, that do the same thing. The rocks do the same thing both places, but they're different rocks. The rod's the same, but does different things. All that makes sense. Maybe. But these two goats, they're one whole, two parts. The goat for YHVH, the goat for the Lord, the goat for Jehovah, the goat for Yahweh, whatever you want to say, is offered as a sin offering Leviticus 16.9. And it is killed to make atonement. It is called the goat of the sin offering. The second goat, the goat for Azazel, or the goat for Satan, is released to where Satan is. Where is Satan? He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. It's released into the desert, into the wilderness, where Satan resides. And is somehow it testifies of something that Christ is doing. Christ has accomplished. It is a proclamation. It is sent to him as evidence of something. What was it sent? What is the evidence? And clearly this is a prophecy that Christ fulfills at Matthew 4. He goes into the desert, into the wilderness, to see Azazel. And he proclaims something to him. He testifies to him. He proves something. What does he prove? We've had this discussion hundreds of times. He presents the solution to free will and sin. He presents the solution to sin. That's what's happening in Matthew 4. But there's two parts of the second goat in the New Testament. The second part happens between the period of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection when he 
actually issues a proclamation to the fallen angels of Genesis 6 who are imprisoned. And that is 1 Peter 3.19. The point of all of that is that the second goat is a proof of the solution to sin. A proof is given to Satan at Matthew 4 and the fallen angels at 1 Peter 3.19. And that is, that is given to us in portrait by Leviticus 16. The atonement feast, the atonement ceremony by the second goat, the live goat. Okay? Needless to say, there's great mysteries surrounding the live goat. Not the least of which is the purpose of the transfer. Because the sacrificed goat, the goat that's killed, that's the sin offering. And it had what on it? It had sin transferred to it. It took the place. It is the for your sakes we killed the goat. There's that for your sakes, see. It is the substitute. All of the sins of the people are on that first goat. It didn't win in the lottery. Okay, it did win, by the way. All the sins of the people are on it, Leviticus 16, 16. Let me put that on the board. Because I take the position that all means what? All. And then the sins of the goat were accepted by God. The sins of the people transferred to the goat, the goat for the sake of the people, the goat in the place of the people killed the sins, go to God, and accepted the sacrifice. The slain goat is accepted, sacrifice accepted. So, what remains now to be put on the other goat? Because it says that Aaron put something on the other goat. What does this have to do with what? Why does he take the rod? The payment has been made by the death of the slain goat. The transference has occurred. There is nothing left to pay. There are no more sins left. So what is put on the head of the live goat that is sent to Satan? And without debate... J.H. Kurtz, this is for the internetters, you can look this up, J.H. Kurtz, Hinstonburg, Kyle, Noble, they've worked this through the best. There's nobody that has done the work that Kurtz has done in my view. Kurtz realized that the second goat had expiated sin on it. When Aaron puts his hands on it, there is no sin left. So the only sin, the only thing that can go on it Expiated sin, which means forgiven sin, or covered sin, or sin deprived of its power. If you want to think of it this way, the second goat had nothing on it. Or if you want to say it had forgiven sin on it, either way, you wouldn't be uh, far off the mark. And that's why it's sent to Satan. What's that? That's right. It's the sin has been solved. And Satan gets a receipt. If you want to think of it that way. And uh, J.H. Kurtz said this. 1863. And I'm quoting him. Because I want to get it perfect. 
as he said it so beautifully. Consequently, every interpretation of the ceremony which ignores or denies or disputes that the second goat had expiated, forgiven, or covered sin, or sin deprived of its power, that disputes this, we must at the very outside, outset declare it to be erroneous. So the only interpretation that fits is that the second goat was a receipt, had nothing on it, or had forgiven sin on it, or had sin deprived of its power. So now, what is the purpose of the rod? Can you see where I'm heading? I hope you can. I intend to build the case that the rod, whose primary purpose is to smote, that's what it is. It smotes stuff. It smotes the Red Sea. It smotes Rock One. It also becomes a snake-eating snake. All of those, by the way, are what? Let's just, boom, take off for a second. All of those are what? Smoting rocks, smoting the Red Sea, snake-eating snake. What are those? Those are portraits, depictions, illustrations of the redemptive work of Christ. They're symbols that must be explained, interpreted correctly, uh, by the way, as opposed to translated. There's a, there's a uh, little uh, editorial comment. The difference between interpretation and translation is lost on the church today. I have huge churches out there that don't know the difference between interpretation and translation. It's a common mistake made by the contemporary church. Where was I? The rod, in my opinion, okay, the rod is very much like the slain goat. That's why it's taken. The reason the slain goat, the reason for the rod, the same. How many waters do I have from the rocks? I have two rocks, you see. Exodus 17, Numbers 20. Separated by 40 years. Two phases, two stages, two advents of the rocks. Two comings of the rocks. The first coming of the rock, the second coming of the rock. And the rod is used at the first rock and water comes from the death of the rock. Now, after a long time wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the desert, death from thirst has reappeared. The second time where we have the potential for death from thirst and the rock once again is there. Not the same rock, but the rock is there and the rod is there and its role is accomplished. Its testimony is finished, by the way, Uh, from what it did the first time. Uh, As an aside, just to help you with this, Christ will rule with a rod in Revelation 19.15. calls it iron. So the testimony, there's a testimony to the rod the first time. And so think of it this way. He's taking the testimony of what that rod has done to the rock at the second place or the second rock. And Christ has that testimony with him as he rules in the millennial kingdom. And so you know, by the way, living water comes out of Christ, doesn't it? In Ezekiel 47, he's in the throne room, or the Holy of Holies, if you will. And the living water comes out, flows out, and brings life again. Now, 
Here's a place to interject something really quickly. Numbers 23 through 5 is the place of Israel accusing God of being evil. They call him a liar. They call him a deceiver and a breaker of the marriage contract. They say his every intent was to bring them out of Egypt where they were having a great time. Life was good. Going to bring them out of Egypt. And the reason he was bringing them out of Egypt was to kill them mercilessly. That's his whole purpose of bringing them out. And how does he respond to that? He's being accused, like I said, of being a liar, deceiving them, being evil, and a breaker of the marriage contract. He told them, promised land, they got desert. And it's his fault. How does he respond to it? He gives them what? He gives them living water. There's nothing you can do to stop him from giving them living water. Moses hits the rock twice, screams out the wrong thing. He still gives them living water. They call him a liar. They call him evil. He gives them living water. They tell him he broke the contract. He gives them living water. God responds to what they say it will take the rod and what it testifies of and what it represents and speak to the rock while you are holding the testimony of the rod in your hand. Speak to the rock. And the rock will give its living water, its light, its blood, its mercy, its goodness, its truth. He responds to their accusations against him with living water, with blood, with goodness, with mercy. And the most obvious of the obvious questions is why does he do that? Why does Christ return for Israel? Why does the son of David come? When they say, save us now, what does he do? He saves them. Why does he do that? Why not just let them die in their sins? But he doesn't. He gives them water. What do you got to do when you get the water, by the way? You got to take it. You got to drink it. Why would people turn down the living water? Will people turn down the living water? Yes, by the billions. For what reason will they have? Today I ask people all the time. I asked Amanda on the phone the other day. She's talking to me. Because she likes to talk to me when I'm sick. It's her way of getting even. Um, <laughs> but I, I said, for what reason will people not believe in Christ? What reason do you get? I won't believe in Christ because why? I don't want to give something up. Most of the time they tell me. What is it you don't want to give up? My fun in this world. I will turn down your living water for my fun. I'm having fun. Do you have any idea how stupid that is? How trivial. You have living water in front of you and you will turn it down because you think you're having fun. You're so stupid. I'm probably offending people on the Internet now. I'm really sorry for that. <laughs> Apparently, you don't think I'm sorry. 
you will turn down living water, Christ's blood, for your fun. And you are so stupid that you think it's fun. That's what's really sad. You are not just stupid for turning down the living water. You're stupid for thinking that you have something that is of equal value. Because that's what you're doing. I would rather have this than that. I don't want the living water. I want this. What you have is putrid. It is. It's stench. And it is so small and so insignificant and so valueless. But they'll do it by the billions. Why does Christ even come? Why is he blessed for coming? Is he blessed? Blessed is he who comes. Is he blessed for coming? Who's blessing him? I won't come, he says, until you scream for me. And you will scream, blessed is he who comes. Is he blessed for coming? What's in it for God? What's he get out of you believing in him? Out of you taking the water? What's he get? I used to go to the First Baptist Church in Anchorage, downtown. And a young man, you've heard me tell the story, every time he took me to training union, I thought he liked me, but I found out later, no, he got a camera. If he got the most people, they were dead. There's something in it for him. What is in it for Christ? Why does he come? So a bunch of people that just called him evil will now say, whoa, save us now. Bless you. Does he need the blessing of man? Is that, is that what he's after? That's, by the way, why Moses takes the rod. Because what's the rod testify of? The rod testifies of something. The rod testifies that he's a snake-eating snake. What's that mean? What is a snake-eating snake? I'll help you. The snake-eating snake is the same as the Ark of the Covenant. Is it good to be a snake-eating snake? It's good for us. The rod testifies that Christ is a snake-eating snake. The rod testifies of death. That's why he takes it. Forgiven sins are on the live goat. Why? Why are any sins forgiven? What kind of person forgives sins? For what reason? Does the author of evil, as, the, as Israel just said he was, does the author of evil, is that, if, they, if he was the author of evil, does the author of evil forgive sins? Does Satan forgive sin? Does a liar forgive sin? Does a contract breaker forgive sin? Does somebody who wants to take out a nation out of Egypt, this wonderful place, that's sarcasm, out into the wilderness so they can die, is that somebody who forgives sin? Is that somebody who saves? So he's none of that. And it is obvious just by the rod that he is none of that. They just accused him of it and he told Moses, take the rod It testifies as to who I am. It rebukes them. It is the antithesis 
of what they said I am. Who can forgive sin? What is required to forgive sin? How much power does it take to forgive sin? Luke 5.23. How much power does it take to give water, living water? God is the one who gives water, who gives blood, who gives flesh. God is the one who gives. God is the one who saves. God is the one who loves. Do not call him angry and evil or a liar. That is so disrespectful and so wrong. He is the one who requires. Whosoever shall not hearken unto my word which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. He requires that we believe. He requires that we command that we believe in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.23. It's a commandment. What will be the reasons for those who disobey that direct order? What will your reason be? I want my stuff. Okay, last question. Moses and Aaron, I'll help you right here. I'll answer four and five for you. I, by the way, answered one. Okay, one. Oh, I answered three. I did that last week. What was he supposed to say to the rock? That should be obvious. You should have that. Moses and Aaron, they got two choices. Numbers 20, right? Some will say three, but I'll say two and three actually are one choice. They had two choices. I'll give you choice number one. Did Moses and Aaron intend for God to destroy and kill all of Israel? In Numbers 20. They had just called God evil. When they beat on the rock, what did they think would happen? Did they intend God to let all of Israel, were they trying to sabotage the giving of the living water? Can you sabotage the giving of the living water? No. Did they know that? What did they intend? Did they intend for God to destroy and kill all of Israel? That's your first choice. Now, what choice, what's the other choice? If you're not going to kill all of Israel, then what are you going to do? Who's left? There's your answer to number four and five. Let's rise and be with men.